when it hit and it hit violently, it came very fast, right? Sometimes I get confused on what year we're in because it seems like it's been a year or two. We were able to pivot really quickly. We made some minor tweaks to some of the experience where we kind of just changed the thought process with our team members that the dining room was now going to be moved into the parking lot. And how do we take what we are already doing, which is curbside through our technology, and then just make sure every order is no longer a walk-in to go, but everything just goes to the curbside. And so really we were in a great position. Part of that's because of the investment we made and the time that we'd spent years before. Welcome to Clicks to Bricks, the podcast about multi-location marketing. I'm your host, Rob Reed. Our mission is to inform and entertain multi-location marketers through the stories of top CMOs, senior executives, and subject matter experts. Over the past 10 years, multi-location marketing has become a unique and specialized discipline within the broader marketing universe. And we believe it deserves a dedicated forum in which to learn and exchange ideas. This is why Clicks to Bricks exists. My guest today is Wade Allen, SVP and Head of Innovation for Brinker International, the parent company of Chili's and Maggiano's Little Italy. The company recently launched a new concept, It's Just Wings, which uses the company's 1,000 plus kitchens, but is delivery only through DoorDash. On this episode, we talk about this, and how innovation has enabled Brinker to outperform the market during COVID-19. Wade Allen, thanks so much for joining us on Clicks to Bricks. It's great to be here. Let's start off with a bit of background information on Brinker International for those who aren't really aware of that company. Yeah, you bet. So Brinker is one of the world-leading casual dining restaurant companies. You probably, or most customers, would know us best when you think about the brands of Chili's and Maggiano's. Brinker has been in business for 45 years, so we have quite a bit of experience in polished casual and casual dining. And though we own two brands today, three now with what we're going to talk about with a few virtual brands we've just launched, we've had several brands that we've owned over the course of the last 45 years. So we're restaurateurs at heart for sure. And so you've been with Brinker for six years now. You've served in a number of different roles. Most recently, you're in a newly created role of head of innovation. Talk to me a little bit about your history and the roles that you've had previously and what led up to this new role. Yep. So I started here at Brinker back in 2014. And the first role I had was the VP of Digital Innovation and Guest Experience. And really that focus of the role was about integrating and bringing marketing closer to IT. We were trying to really build mobile app for both brands, really try to understand the better positioning of the web and build a customer database for the future. And that was really what that focus was, is on kind of that integration piece between marketing and IT because MarTech was a big thing and it was happening in the industry that was changing uh, restaurant. After about four years in that role, three and a half years in that role, I got the opportunity to move over to IT. And though I twisted my CEO's arm to make sure it was still called CDO as a title, Chief Digital Officer, because I still wanted to have my hands in what I had a lot of passion for, which was marketing and digital innovation. I got the opportunity to work closely with a very large IT team, data security team, and an analytics team. Gained an incredible amount of knowledge there just around things that I had only seen and had experience on the periphery. So think infrastructure, think managed service providers that would help keep our organization running. 
And then data security spent a lot of time really securing the organization and ensuring that we weren't going to be vulnerable, yeah, <laughs> although we did go through stories, breach, right? Yeah. yeah. And then made the transition just recently to a new role. We talked about it just earlier about innovation. And this role was really created about a year ago, pre-pandemic, to have a dedicated leader and team to kind of innovate the future of restaurants and looking at opportunities for Brinker about the new brands that we were thinking about bringing forward. So that's kind of the journey, marketing, IT, and now innovation. And today I really focus on culinary. I have culinary ops and engineering and these new virtual brands. So the innovation role definitely predated the COVID crisis then. It was already getting going. Did COVID kind of accelerate it a bit? The role itself was developed before COVID. Steve Provo, who's a mentor of mine and now the president of Maggiano's, he was in this role. About the COVID crisis pandemic hit, we started to make a transition and we moved him into the Maggiano's role and moved me into this role. So it accelerated some of the movement that was going to happen, but it didn't really create the role. We knew it was there. We knew it needed to happen. So talk to me, as painful as it was, about the experience of dealing with the COVID crisis. You know, we had communicated at the depths of it when it was really bad. How prepared were the brands to pivot to pickup and delivery? And how prepared was the whole organization for this? Did a lot of the innovation stuff that you were doing kind of set you up to be able to handle it better? Yeah, we had spent a lot of time prior to this pandemic building the infrastructure. I mean, I would say the entire time that I've been here at Brinker, my role has been about building pieces of that infrastructure and preparing for a transition that the customer was making. And it's long been called the Amazonian era or whatever you want to call it, this transition that's happened with consumers where they have technology in their pocket. So the investments we had made really started back in 2014 and had led up to this point. Everything from building a CRM database a customer retention marketing database and a loyalty program to establishing a better mobile experience for our guests and putting tablets on the table, all these things, contactless type payments. So we were fairly prepared. We had had relationships with a delivery company. DoorDash is our delivery partner. And we knew, I mean, a year before we went into the pandemic, we had decided to go exclusive. We were very committed to our partner and we were really playing in the digital space. So when it hit and it hit, violently. It came very fast, right? Sometimes I get confused on what year we're in because it seems like it's been a year or two. We were able to pivot really quickly. We made some minor tweaks to some of the experience where we kind of just changed the thought process with our team members that the dining room was now going to be moved into the parking lot. And how do we take what we are already doing, which is curbside through our technology, and then just make sure every order is no longer a walk-in to go, but everything just goes to the curbside. And so really, we were in a great position. Part of that's because of the investment we made and the time that we'd spent years before. It seems like certain brands were almost running pandemic fire drills before they even knew a pandemic was coming by making the shift to digital and delivery and just going to where the consumer was already headed, right? Yeah. What was the timing like in terms of making that transition? Was it immediate? Things got shut down and all of a sudden things were shifted to curbside and delivery? Well, there was definitely some shock and awe. When it all happened, I'm sure any restaurateur can tell you, it was like everybody was stood up and it was fine. And then it was like market by market, by state, by region, all of a sudden things were just shut down in the dining room. 
And then you didn't know, do we have the right to operate to go? Do we not? Can we do this? How does it work? What are the rules? So we scrummed really quickly. We put a team in place that met twice a day, every day when that first happened. But the level of effort to really make that happen was pretty minimal. I mean, because of the systems that were already there, because we already had a very strong to-go and delivery business, we just leaned into that. There was a lot of other motion and commotion around testing team members and temperatures that were coming in and out of the restaurant and making sure people are safe and making sure that we had the appropriate personal protection gear that we could do these things. But contactless payment was already in place. We just modified our tablets that were on the table to work in the parking lot so people could take payment in the parking lot using a credit card. We extended our Wi-Fi into the parking lot so that our team members could use their secure devices to make those payments done. So those were minor tweaks, right? Those were just making sure that we could chat about it, strategically decide what we were going to do, and then make that transition pretty quick. So all in all, when I compare it to our peers in the group, we were probably the least disruptive of casual dining by far on our ability to pivot and meet the needs of the customer. The the success stories that you started to hear early were like Domino's and Chipotle, which are much, you know, QSR, yeah. fast casual models. They were also both shifting to digital. And I think a lot of people almost counted out casual dining, believing that the in-person model was just going to be affected. And it's pretty phenomenal. We're going to get into this some more about how you've proved everybody wrong on that, right? Yeah. It feels good. I mean, you say that. And, Wall Street and, was and, counting and, you out there for a little right, while, huh? Right. It's kind of like, what kind of person are you? Do you like to play in an away stadium or a home stadium? And I've always been one of the people, and I think a lot of guys on our team love the away games, right? Because it just makes you rise to the occasion. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. So the big radical step that you've taken that you talked about recently on the earnings call and you launched previously was this approach of launching these delivery-only concepts. The first one is called It's Just Wings. And tell us about that model. Tell me about, was this in the works pre-crisis already? Was it already pretty much on the roadmap? And how's it going so far? Yeah, so a uh, passion of mine for sure. On the roadmap, we've been working on a virtual brand or a ghost kitchen or whatever you want to call these. A Cloud house kitchen. kitchen. Cloud I don't kitchen. Know. There's 50 <laughs> names, right? Right. Basically a brand that only exists in a delivery setting and not something you can stop off and pick up and to go or, or eat in the dining room, but just delivery only. We've been working on it for probably a year, but we've been working on a slightly different concept. We've been testing a different concept and we realized, hey, we can make some modifications to it and we could probably do something a little bit different that works better than the model we were working with. And so we started ideating on a couple of different food concepts. The one that seemed to resonate best and seemed to be right in line with our business model and use some of the existing muscle memory we had was this wings concept. I think a lot of people don't necessarily know, but if you've ever eaten at a Chili's, we do a lot of crispers. We do a lot of wings, right? That's kind of our- It's a pretty um, big menu. Yeah, it's a big menu, right? And when you're a varied menu concept, you got a lot of options to play with this. We do fries and wings all the time. So it was muscle memory for our operators. It seemed to be a no-brainer because wings was a hot topic and a lot of people were really digging wings right now. And it seems like a food that was going to continue to grow and do well. And we knew we had a great product. We could make it abundant on the plate. And we knew it was a great value. So we literally developed it around that premise and we launched it on June 23rd. 
And it's been great. I mean, right now, sales are in a great place. We think we can do better, but we're annualizing a little over 150 million a year. So that's a big, that's incredible. big number, right? So we're excited. And it just lives inside of DoorDash. That's pretty much it. That's it. I mean, it is a DoorDash only brand. And all of our marketing really around this brand is in that DoorDash platform. That's where we really play because that's where the demand is. And that's where we see the opportunity. And so all of the kitchens that are serving It's Just Wings would be across Chili's and Maggiano's? Yep. It uses all of the kitchens at Brinker's Disposal, which today are the Chili's and Maggiano's brands. We've rolled it to our franchisees as well. And they're taking advantage of that, our Chili's franchise owners. Right. And then we're doing some testing internationally. Yeah. Now that you bring that up, what does the corporate-owned, franchise-owned, and number of franchisees look like? Because it sounds like you guys are pretty heavy on the corporate side. Yeah. It's about a 75-25 split or 80-20 split for corporate-owned versus franchisees. We have have some great franchisees, but a small amount compared to our corporate-owned restaurants. So how many total franchisees are there? would you say? I want to say we have four big franchisees and then a handful of franchisees in airports and some military bases and things like that. So I don't know the exact number, but it's a pretty small number. It's less than 10 is my belief or right around that number in total franchise ownership. And so the It's Just Wings concept has rolled out to them as well. It started out corporate and just recently now. The- yeah. We've been live with franchisees about the last week, week and a half. Nice. And also this week, you reported your Q2 earnings and the It's Just Wings announcement was a big part of that and that $150 million number also reported a much smaller loss right, than Wall Street was expecting. And as a result, the stock was up like 20% this week. Yeah, that's what the number was. <laughs> <laughs> that's just phenomenal. It, it is really great. is. It's you got to be feeling fun. pretty good about that. It's been a labor of love for sure though. You look at that stock number and you're like, yeah, finally, we worked our tail off and feel like I haven't slept in six months, but it feels good. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, if you weren't paying attention, the stock hit almost seven bucks, I think, at the bottom of the crisis, right? Yeah. Yeah. Late March, some, I think. Or some early dark April. days. Yeah. That was scary. <laughs> we knew that we have a strong brand. And you know, when you're a part of this brand, you know we're survivors and we're winners and we're going to turn things around. So there was a lot of confidence to what we were going to bring forward. So any plans to do additional concepts under this model? As a casual dining restaurant and a varied menu concept, we have a lot of options and a lot of opportunity. We have a lot of muscle memory. So I'm keeping it pretty close to the vest, but we're exploring and testing other options. Nice. Yeah. It would seem like a winner given the success of Wings. And I guess you're out there with Wings competing against like the Wing Stops and the Buffalo Wild Wings of the world, which can also order through DoorDash, but they've obviously got their brick and mortar counterparts. Do you feel like the It's Just Wings concept also needs a kind of a brick and mortar route at all to kind of pick up some of that Google search traffic or kind of incremental sales from outside of DoorDash? It's a really good question. I will tell you, we are looking at all options and all opportunities. The world has changed. I mean, it's accelerated five years and the world is a different place for restaurants. So I think that there are options for us to do maybe some of those or explore some of those areas of pickup and some other areas for our wings concept. Are the customers aware that it's coming from Chili's? Is that anywhere in the experience? We made it as clear as we can. And we focused a lot on this internally before we launched this brand is because we know that consumers are very savvy. And there's been a history throughout the course of advertising of an era of deception. 
we discussed this at length. And so before we launched It's Just Wings, we ensured that we stood up our own website, that we trafficked it through Google, that we actually had a story and about a story that told about how we came out of our kitchens of the different concepts and specifically that we were a Brinker concept. Also in DoorDash, where we do most of our marketing and all that demand is coming from, we have lists on those pages as you access that site that we are a Brinker concept. Now, the honest truth is most consumers may not know or our guests may not know the term who Brinker is or about Brinker restaurants, but letting them know about Brinker and if they were to do the research, they'll see that we've been in the industry 45 years, that we've had multiple concepts and we know restaurants. So to your point, I think it's really important to make sure that we're honest and open with our customers. Virtual kitchens and virtual brands are going to exist. We're kind of cross that threshold. The question now becomes is how do guests accept them? And how important is it to be transparent? And we think that it's critical. Yeah. You're not trying to trick anybody into ordering Chili's Wings with another brand. It doesn't seem that way from my perspective. But then you can also order wings from Chili's through DoorDash as well. And it's more or less the same product, but you could order obviously a bunch of different things with that. Yes. So we've tried to keep them pretty separate. So we'll talk through some of the details. So for example, we offer a curly fry. We offer three different types of wings, bone-in, boneless, and smoked. And we offer 11 different sauces that exist in our wings today. And we also offer a fried Oreo. None of that is available from Chili's and DoorDash or in our dining rooms at Chili's. We have a crisper and we have some wings that was some smoked wings that we sell, but none of the sauces, none of the desserts and none of the side of fries. So we've tried to be pretty specific in this is a different brand with different product sets But the same muscle memory from an operation standpoint, because it's fryers and it's wings and it's things that we know. Yeah. It seems like it's along the lines of the disrupt yourself before you get disrupted, right? Yeah. That's a good way to put it. So let's shift a little bit more to kind of general marketing. It seems like you're still playing a a pretty big role in the marketing organization within Brinker and the two brands. Yeah. Michael Breed today is our EP of marketing. He leads that organization. But We're very close. I've worked with Michael for better part of five years. And so we partner pretty closely on a lot of the marketing, both for Chili's and specifically for the virtual brands. So in response to the crisis, how has marketing shifted? Are there certain areas that are getting more or less investment or have you guys just pretty much cut marketing across the board, which seems to be a pretty common reaction? So it has been, well, one, we kind of iced everything when we went into this, right? We kind of stopped everything because it's an expenditure and we're not sure where we're going to net out. But you have to also remember, because we've spent so much time building a very strong digital and customer, direct-to-consumer business, we had the strong position to have 8.5 million active guests in our Chili CRM database that we can communicate through text or email. And at that scale, while we may have turned off the radio and the television, we're still getting the message to the loyal Chili's guests And we're still pushing out into some other areas of marketing as well. We still lean into some social. We still lean into some PR work. And then coming weeks and months, we'll start to turn back on that marketing engine. But the world's changed. We always knew that the flip was coming to a more digital and CRM focused than a mass. And we'd been slowly transitioning our marketing model over the last couple of years. This has just accelerated it in a big way where we're starting to really rethink all of our mass in a different way. Yeah, I guess, I mean, if you haven't invested in CRM over the past few years, you're kind of left out into the cold right now, right? Yeah, for sure. 
I recently wrote this piece for Forbes called CMOs Need to Think and Act Locally in the Age of COVID and Beyond. Is Brinker communicating and marketing at the store level, whether through the CRM or externally? We do a lot of personalized marketing. So even maybe one step below a restaurant, hey, we know what Wade Allen has purchased in the past and what's on his plate. We know what he tends to lean into, what he's preferred. We know he likes kids' meals because he has four little ones. And so we've been really tailored in the messaging that goes to the consumer or our guests in that fashion. From a store level, we're not as good and we need to get better because relevancy play on a regional play and regional meaning your neighborhood and your general area is a big thing. And I would say, you know, if our portfolio, while we do a fantastic job at very personalized communication and we're really strong in the digital CRM space, that localized or micro localized area, we probably could flex a little bit bigger muscle there. And it's something we're probably going to continue to lean into as we pull out of mass and look to be more in those regions and areas around our restaurants. Yeah. I mean, I tend to agree that that's going to be one of the things going forward that brands are going to need to do more of. I mean, being stuck at home and not being able to get on planes and People, I think, are just getting much more locally oriented and even with a big chain, thinking more of their chilies as a local restaurant and not as part of a big chain because they're also not seeing the national ads that they would normally see. And so the brand experience becomes much more local because they're really not getting a brand message, right? Yeah, absolutely. So before joining Brinker, you were vice president of retail for Rockfish Interactive, I don't even know. I forgot we haven't talked about this, but Rockfish actually invested in my company back in 2010, small angel investor in there. So our paths crossed there, even though I don't think we met back then. But as VP of retail, does that mean you were working with a lot of multi-location brands? Was that the focus of that role? And is that what kind of set you up to get into multi-unit restaurant? Yeah, it definitely helped pave the path. I mean, you learn a ton Retail and restaurant are very similar. I mean, there's some nuances that exist between them, but they are close cousins of one another. And the experience that I had had with Rockfish and my previous organization, which was RAP, did really afford me the know-how to understand, okay, what is it like to work in a particular company that has multiple units that you have to deal with? They've got regional locations. They've got geographic dispersion. You've got different demographics. You have to work with individuals on an individual restaurant basis or retail basis. And so it it did really kind of set me up and have that knowledge. I think the other part of Rockfish that really helped me was the ability within that organization, they had a labs incubator and they had created a product and Rockfish afforded me and a few others the opportunity to take that product and really build a business around it. And then truly take that and sell back into these retail establishments that they were working for. That that little product turned into be what's called Coupon Factory, which is a social couponing solution. And we worked really closely with retailers that were pushing coupons to their customers or pushing coupons through a customer base that needed to redeem those in grocery stores. So we got a great experience, both from a small business perspective and from a a retail perspective to understand that space. Were there any particular multi-location brands that you worked with back then that stick out in terms of project or... So we worked with a lot of consumer packaged goods, but we worked with Dave & Buster's. We actually did a little bit of work. And Dave & Buster's is an interesting one because you got to see how restaurants and entertainment worked 
to kind of help them do some couponing. We worked with with Publix Grocery Store, which was an interesting one as we kind of stepped into that whole space of grocery. And I'd had a little bit of experience in my past working with Kroger and Super Value and HEB. So that was another one where I got to kind of see, you know, what's it like to run an individual grocery store across a myriad of different landscapes and how consumers vary and differ across the different regions of the United States. Those are kind of the ones that stick out in my mind the most. The central thesis here on Clicks to Bricks is that multi-location marketing is a specific discipline within the broader marketing landscape. And that as a result, it seems that marketers are staying within that, whether or not it's restaurant to retail or to other multi-unit retail models. One example is the CMO of Chili's recently went over to Burger King, right? Is that your view? And is that something that's evolved over the years where it might not have been the case 10 or 15 years ago, but it is the case now? And what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think so. I think you find a place where you can thrive. And if you figure out multi-location retail or restaurant, you have an incredibly powerful skill set, especially if you can figure out how to market the nuances in individual areas and locale. And so you usually stay there. You feel really comfortable there. I don't envision myself ever transitioning away from retail or restaurant, right? Even if things were to change here for me, which I hope they never do because I love my job. But you think about, hey, I would want to play in that space. There's a lot of passion for me to help, one, operators operate more efficiently, but to help them market to customers in their general area and kind of bring that skill set, that blue sky thinking to what can sometimes be considered a little bit tired industry, right? Retail and restaurant had been behind for a long time and they started to catch up pace and they started to use some of these really cool technologies. And there were very, very few people out there that were really embracing this. And so now we're starting to see a momentum shift and there's a lot more demand and a lot more need. And so if you have the expertise, man, it's a great place to play. On that note, I wanted to bring up the topic of brand versus performance marketing. Your thoughts on those kind of competing forces for a marketer in a multi-location restaurant, there's the demand to try to build the brand and the emotional connection. And what it seems like, you've effectively turned most of that off as a response to the crisis going to CRM, which is pretty much closed loop performance marketing, right? But the COVID aside, how do you balance that or how does Chili's balance those competing forces? This question is super interesting because if you had asked me early on in my career where I was primarily a direct marketer, I would have said brand has little value. What I will tell you now is maybe we, in all things as we age and as we gain experience, we change our tune a little bit and we start to see that there's more to the world than just the finite view we have in our youth. I have learned over the course of my career that there is value in both of these. It is a very delicate value. And sometimes that pendulum swings back and forth. And it's case by case. So for example, I'll give you a Chili's example. Chili's has 97, 98% recognition in the market. There are very few people that don't know who and what Chili's is all about. Not the case with It's Just Wings, right? Not the case with this new virtual brand we're building. And so Chili's has the distinct advantage where as you go into something like a pandemic, it could throttle down on its brand marketing for a time and really focus on that performance marketing. I think that is a short-term win. I think it could be a long-term loss if we don't bring back some of that brand marketing. Now, I don't think it's back to the 90s and 80s where everything was about brand marketing and we're not going to worry about that and you just throw money into the wind and half of it, you don't know where it goes, right? I think those days are gone. 
But when you think about it's just wings, we have a different problem. We have a really great little brand with a great value proposition and it's got great demand in DoorDash, but we have to continue to build that brand and it's got to stand on its own. It can't just be only a small little brand forever. It's got to start to grow and flourish a little bit. And so we've got to get the name out there. So I've crossed this bridge in my career where I see the value of both now more than ever. Many companies that don't have the recognition in the market or haven't continued to kind of pound that drum of brand have the advantage of turning off the brand marketing and expecting everything to come back when the pandemic lightens up or we find a vaccine, right? I don't think that's the case. So I'm interesting on this topic because I find myself somewhere in between now as an executive of an organization, understanding both of them have a lot of merit. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. But it is interesting to hear you talk about trying to build the It's Just Wings brand, which would seem to imply that it'll eventually have a life outside of DoorDash. So is that some of the long-term thinking on that? Or is it just basically creating some brand connections so you get some preference when they do go to DoorDash, that they're choosing It's Just Wings over the competitors? I mean, it may be both. I don't know what the future holds. I would say that we value DoorDash immensely. They're a great partner. Their platform is growing 100% year over year. They have an enormous amount of demand. And I can't quote you how many people view their site, but I know it's in the top sites in the country in views. So part of it is just elevating the status of our brand and making it in the consideration set inside of the DoorDash platform. What the future holds outside of that, you could probably guess at some point we have to be able to make this a real brand. We hope DoorDash continues to be a a critical partner for us. But in the end, I think the task that's been given me is build a brand, regardless of the channel that it lives in, just build the brand so that people know it and trust it and want to have a part of it, right? Yeah. I mean, is DoorDash similar to Hotels.com and Expedia and like inserting itself in between the consumer and the hotels? Because I've felt Obviously, those are a lot more mature than DoorDash. And we've seen the effects where all of a sudden, like the hotels loved it because they were getting all these bookings. But then all of a sudden, they're like, wait a minute, now we actually want to try to push people back to our hotel site to actually make the bookings so we don't have to pay those huge fees. Like, is there a risk of that in the longer term? Yeah, a little bit. I think the one nuance through all of that is when you think about those aggregators, that's exactly what they were, was just aggregators. The one thing that DoorDash brings beyond that is the logistical piece of it. So as a restaurant company, when you think about DoorDash, they really have two key models. They have a logistics model and they have a kind of an eyeball or a media model, right? A demand model. Both of them are critical, but that logistics model is what entices us as restaurateurs because trying to build your own logistics delivery company is just not sustainable when you have north of a thousand restaurants and you're focused on just doing what you do well, which is make really great food. So there's value a little bit more than I see than the traditional like hotel aggregators. But you're right. In a sense, you have to be careful, make sure you pick the right partner and make sure they're willing to evolve their model over time and that there's a willingness to share in that information to make both of you better and not be a company that just holds that data hostage, right? Because at that point, you would eventually have to build your business around. What was the decision process like in choosing DoorDash Is it pretty much the only option for a company of your size and a brand of your type? Or were there some others that would be viable and you ended up choosing DoorDash over the others? We talked to and tested with all of the major players for quite a while. And 
the reason we selected DoorDash One, the relationship was great. We had a great relationship with their senior executive team and what their vision was. They met us where our restaurants were, which really was suburbia, right? We were in the suburbs for the most part. And they were very technically savvy and were willing to do some integrations with us beyond just putting tablets in our restaurant. And then, you know, the fourth and probably most important one is they were willing to work with us on a partnership that made sense on a cost structure so that we both won as they did the logistics and the demand and we did the cooking and the making of the food. Describe a little bit about your leadership philosophy. How are you recruiting, empowering, and retaining a high performance team? I know that's a bit of a shift in the conversation, but wanted to definitely not forget to touch on these given your senior role there. I really focus on team. So it's probably a look into my soul a little bit when you talk about my leadership philosophy, but I grew up a lot playing athletics. I grew up a lot playing on team sports and team unity. And in the end, I didn't care as much about being the captain or care as much about having the starting position as long as I was a part of the team and the team won. And that made a really big impact on me when I got into business. And I've seen that tends to be what attracts people to my leadership is that, hey, we are a team. It doesn't matter if you're an analyst or an IT individual or if you're in strategy, we're all going to get in a room. We're all going to whiteboard the solution. We're all going to have a voice in the decision. And then we're going to all work like hell to make it be successful. I think that's what I try to convey. I, I say the other part that I really focus on is being a leader you know, marching troops into battle, not sending troops into battle, being on the front lines and being a part of that. And if it's late nights, be the guy that buys the pizza and shows up and is there and part of that conversation when you're doing late night rollouts for IT. Or if, you know, you're in the middle of a COVID crisis, you're on the call twice a day, every day, being a part of the conversation, helping make decisions and not just leaving your team to do the work. I'll tell you the thing that does seem to attract though to my team, I think they love the thought of innovation and blue sky and changing the industry. So I have talked a long time over the course of the last five years of, let's just change the industry. Let's be disruptive and do something completely different. And we've done a little bit of that in some of the digital innovation stuff that we've done here at Chili's. But this one was the real kind of right hook that I felt like we threw that we said, we are going to change it. And now we have permission to change it with what's happened with COVID. That's really cool. So if you're giving advice to a young person who aspired to head of innovation for Brinker or chief digital officer today, you know, knowing how fast things are changing, I mean, what advice will you give them in terms of what to look at at that college in terms of what to study? And then as they look at taking on that first job in a marketing organization, or if there's a fully built out innovation organization, what kind of advice are you giving a person like that? I've got an 18-year-old son who's headed to college in a few <laughs> weeks. So I've given this story a few times to him. Although he's not like dad, I don't think he wants to run restaurants. But I do believe that there's power in a technical degree that requires some level of precision, technical and mathematics understanding. Whether that's finance or accounting, whether that's data science, whether that's IT, something that kind of leans into that space. Now, masters-wise or even a minor in business is it critically important. And that's helped me, whether it's reading a profit and loss or cash flow or understanding just how a business operates. But my technical understanding, you know, with, with a degree in marketing and a master's degree also in a communications field, but that master's was very 
specific in direct database and e-commerce, it gave me the opportunity to spend the early part of my career as an analyst and writing code to extract data out of a database and then trying to find patterns in the data to then present back to executives of consumer packaged goods companies of here's where the problem is on the shelf or here's where the problem is with your packaging or here's what's going on and we need to delist ourselves from this category. That fundamental understanding really also helped me then to the next level, which is, okay, the world's now changing and it's all digital and technical. How do I not be afraid of that? And how do I just dive in and really understand all these different nuances of marketing technology, social, local? How do I get into the weeds on CRM and really understand and not be afraid of technical conversations? So my advice to the youth that are coming through is I do think a technical degree matters. I do think a business degree, either supplemental or a master's matters. And I do think being willing to learn things that are difficult and hard. I think we as humans tend to say, well, I'm good at marketing, so I'm going to stay in marketing. If you're willing to raise your hand and say, I'll run IT, right? I'll go bounce around in accounting and figure out how to do the accounting piece. I'll go over and do something on supply chain. I think those are the individuals that become powerful leaders of their organization. And that's exactly what I've tried to do in my career. And I think that's how I've gotten to this innovation role. Playing all sorts of positions and getting pretty good at a number of them, right? Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a personal performance regimen? I do follow you on LinkedIn, so I, I know part of the answer to that. Any practices, habits that help you perform at your best physically and mentally? Yeah, I learned a long time ago that for me, exercise is therapy. And it helps me think better. It helps me function better as a father and as a husband. It helps me better in the boardroom or just in relationships at work. And so pretty regimented every morning. The alarm goes off about 5.20 and me and my golden retriever, Maisie, make the 25 steps to the garage and we have built a pretty nice gym in the garage and we spend time in there and working out every morning. And it can be everything from high intensity interval training to weights to CrossFit, anything to keep me moving and active and engaged. And the other part of it is there's a spiritual component in my life for sure. I make time for that to each their own and how they seek providence. But for me, it's through my religion and that gathering in the religious state and also being around people who share those same values makes a huge impact on my psyche and allows me to be reinvigorated to tackle the work week. Nice. I appreciate that and agree with all of it. I want to, as we kind of wrap up here, a question that I didn't really prep you with, but are you familiar with an Instagram account that's called Middle Class Fancy? I don't think so. I don't know if I know that one. Middle Class <laughs> I'm gonna Fancy. Have to follow, I'm going to have, have to follow, follow up. Their logo is designed like a Chili's logo. And it's just this like meme. It's basically a meme channel on Instagram, more or less making fun of middle-class America. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Chili's is kind of a butt of the jokes many times in a very fun way. So I'm going to leave you with um, that research piece. (laughs) I will. I will look into it. In fact, I'll have our social team follow them. That would be fantastic. They probably, I I would be surprised because there's a lot of Chili's memes that come out of it. And, um, oh, that's where my yeah. kids are getting these. Every night at dinner, they got a new meme that are Chili's based. I don't know where they're getting them. It must yeah. be middle class fancy. <laughs> middle class fancy. Okay. Let's wrap up with a quick lightning round. Just a couple topics and your feedback on there. Let's go with customer journey since you're so into the weeds on the data. So customer journey, I would say powerful, understand it, and find ways to utilize it in your loyalty and your CRM programs. 
And I'm going to do one more because we've covered quite a bit. Talk to me about Yelp. We work with them. When you're a casual diner, you can be really afraid of Yelp. But we've worked with them recently in the partners and they kind of put restaurants front and center to the public in a social way. So innovators for sure. And then in wrapping up, any other marketing or digital leaders in multi-unit enterprise that you admire and maybe would want to see on this program? So I really admire Dennis Maloney, part of Domino's. I don't know his most recent title. He was their chief digital officer for a while. I'm not sure where he's at in title-wise now. Brandon Roten is a good one. He had been at Wendy's, kind of started that whole social craziness with Wendy's, and then he's moved over. I think he's over at... uh, Potbelly. Potbelly now. Yeah. So Brandon's a good one. Those are probably the two guys I'd love to see done on this one for sure. Nice. I'll see what I can do about that. Wade, thanks so much for your time today. Rob, thanks, man. And congrats on the success and pulling through. I wish you the best of the luck going forward here. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share it on LinkedIn and to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, you can sign up for our newsletter at clickstobricks.fm for exclusive content and previews of upcoming shows. I'm your host, Rob Reed, and this is Clicks to Bricks, a podcast about multi-location marketing. Mm-hmm.